interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another dive deep into the compliance weeds. Today, we're going to start with a blog post that Matt posted entitled Report Compliance Resources Getting Tight. Matt, uh, first of all, welcome. And uh, what led you to write this uh, blog post? Uh, Hey, Tom. Uh, It's good to be here. So this streaked across my radar screen last week that uh, the law firm Hogan Lovells, they published a report about uh, compliance budgets and resources and risk areas based on a survey of, I think, a little more than 700 corporate compliance leaders at organizations that all had at least 2,000 employees. So this was a good, big look at uh, the global compliance atmosphere and uh, raised some interesting questions because this survey is for 2020, but Hogan Lovells apparently did this survey also in 2016. So they were doing some trend analysis of your budgets and resourcing and risk in the mid-2010s compared to the early 2020s, and uh, not all of these numbers are good. So that caught my eye, and that's where we are. So they certainly be, seem to be trending in in a different direction than they were in 2016. What do you see on the survey side of things, Matt? So they had uh, three questions that um, where they compared the number of people who said yes in 2020 to yes in 2016. So I'll just read them off here. Um, has your budget increased in the last three years? Well, that went from 88% yes in 2016 to 41% yes now. Uh, is your budget likely to increase in the coming year? That went from 84% yes in 2016 to 40% now. And then has your compliance team grown in the last three years? And that had gone from 89% yes to only 42% yes. So that's not a... Uh, you know, we are not uh, in a compliance recession, so to speak, but that is, to my thinking, a big deceleration in the growth of the compliance function. And what Hogan was really uh, calling out in its report is at the same time, these resources are slowing down or more and more people aren't getting the resources, the additional resources they need, their companies are rapidly expanding into emerging markets that are more high risk uh, because the economies in North America and Western Europe are sluggish, to say the least. Uh, Everything's like 1.7 to 2.2% growth, and that is not enough. If you are a big multinational, you have to expand somewhere. So they're expanding into uh, emerging markets, which are high risk, but we have more and more people saying they are not getting additional resources to keep pace with that risk. That was the big through line of this report that compliance officers might not like to hear, but there it is. So Matt, in terms of the growth, and uh, I really like the way you phrased it as as delicately as you always use your sarcasm, um, that uh, 
companies always are looking for new growth opportunities. And if they see a growth opportunity in a emerging market that may happen to be high risk, that's still a, a growth opportunity. And so they'll take a look at expanding there. But this is not something new. This is something companies have been doing long before you and I came on the scene. Well, you know, I got a, a couple of thoughts here about this. Um, number one is that aside from this survey from Hogan Lovells, one thing that, Tom, you and I have not talked about but that came out last month was PwC's CEO survey. And they do that every January. It's released. It's a very good, comprehensive look. And in that survey, um, only about 27% of CEOs were confident that they would be able to grow revenues this coming year. And that is a very low percentage. And historically, PwC said they had not seen that few CEOs be bullish about their own opportunities since 2008-2009, which is not a comfortable analogy because those years totally stunk. And now we see a comparable number of CEOs very uneasy about uh, their growth opportunities. So they are under the gun to grow some way, somehow, some some possible way, and they are going to look into emerging markets. It is true that uh, that's always been the case, you know, show me something new. But what struck me about these different percentages between 2016's resources and 2020's resources. So have you gotten a lot of budget increase in the last three years? Well, when you're saying that in 2016, that meant you were getting a lot more resources because um, everybody understood that we were stepping up attention to the FCPA. The Bribery Act had just come into force. Everybody's thinking about we need to build up our anti-corruption capabilities. And that was the, the theme in the mid-2010s. And now many fewer people saying that today. And is that because more and more executives are thinking, well, the Trump administration slow rolls enforcement on everything and we already have these capabilities. Do we really need to build that much more? We already know the ropes here and we're looking for more growth and we can't find it. So let's just keep a tight lid on costs. And like it fits that narrative. And that narrative is all predicated on the idea that we already have a good compliance function and enforcement risk is lighter because the Trump administration is all about cooperation and waving away penalties and all this stuff, which I don't necessarily think that is a valid thesis for the CEO to have, but it is the thesis that compliance officers have to live with, um, and that's where we could see some tension. That's where I think these numbers come from, and I, I don't really like it, but that's my conclusion. Let me see if I can present an alternative conclusion and really lead into the next area I wanted to explore with you. Could it have been that Leading up to 2016, we saw a uh, more of a ramp up in companies getting compliance as a part of the DNA of their organization, really burning it into the fabric by uh, staffing uh, and bringing in the basic technological tools of compliance. And here, five years later, I guess four years later, when the survey occurred, um, <clears throat> that uh, we uh, are, are more mature and compliance programs are more mature. And so you don't need to have those sort of initial ramp-up costs. And that because of that maturity, uh, you can sustain a effective compliance program, even moving into new emerging and perhaps high-risk markets with the, the budget and headcount you have because leading into point two that you raise in your blog, compliance and technology. Uh, does, compl- does the technological component of this really help 
generate greater efficiencies that can hold costs down? I don't know. And I see the theory there. Um, but as soon as you got into even if you're expanding into new territories, you can still handle it. That's the part where I'm not entirely sure. Um, is it possible that we spent the 2010s getting compliance into our DNA and wherever we're doing business now, we're very good and compliant? Yeah, that's possible, and therefore you don't need as much of a big budget increase. I get that. But is it therefore true that when you now expand into a new market you hadn't been in before, when you were building up the DNA and now you've got your compliance DNA and everything, but you're still expanding for the first time into Africa, Middle East, Indonesia, India, wherever. Is it true that you can more easily enter in there, scale up and the compliance DNA that's already embedded there will make it easier? I, I don't know that that is true, especially if it is the case that you are expanding into these new markets through acquisitions or joint ventures with new players. Um, you know, it's easy to say that now you are in the D that it's in your DNA to perform better due diligence and to explain to new partners how important compliance is. I, I remain uncertain that that is in fact the case when you are expanding into a new area for the very first time. Um, now, to your point about technology, actually, that was interesting because the Hogan Lovells report had a whole separate section just on compliance and tech, where they did say this was a double-edged sword, that um, in many ways, compliance technology makes compliance harder because employees and others can communicate uh, in more oblique ways. They can hide their private chats on text messages or who knows what sort of apps or whatnot, but they can shield communications from you very easily. You are less likely to meet people face-to-face, -face, and what does that mean? You know, if everything is going to be a virtual transaction done digitally, that increases the risk that the, fab the transaction could somehow be falsified. There's all sorts of ways that tech makes the compliance job harder, because it helps employees evade compliance more easily. Um, at the same time, the other edge of the sword, compliance technology does let you um, be more productive in what you are trying to do. And I actually dorked out a bit on uh, macroeconomics about productivity. And remember that productivity is the output per worker. Uh, that's what the economists would define it as. And the more productive you are, the more efficiently the company makes profit. And when all companies are the rising productivity, working, living standards go up. Isn't it great? The whole point being technology can make the compliance function more productive. You are able to get more compliance output with the people you have. Um, and then, of course, maybe you can expand into new markets more easily and everything is great. Uh, if you are shrewd about your technology strategy, uh, and we can go into that a bit if you want, but that was one point I thought was important for compliance officers to remember is what is technology actually supposed to do for you? It is supposed to make you more productive. That is, you can get more compliance stuff done, more output without more headcount. Um, so that, that was uh, something that the the Hogan Levels report talked about at length was how technology can help and hinder what you're trying to do. Well, I guess from my perspective, Matt, I, or, uh, I would see it to be making your compliance program more efficient. 
and allowing you to yep. uh, be uh, aware of anomalies, red flags, or something out of the ordinary more quickly so that then you can deliver a perhaps more robust compliance risk management solution, but that you would have data available uh, in ways you had not did not have in 2016 or even earlier. That's true. And then um, I think there's going to be something of an arms race between employees um, and third parties uh, who are using technology to try and evade what you're monitoring about them, and then you trying to use technology to catch up and monitor them anyways. Um, you know, they're the old idea of people were using text messages to try and evade you so you wouldn't notice that illicit transaction. Then you started monitoring text messages. And then they stopped using actual words and started using emojis. And now there is a sentiment analysis technology that can help you understand what does an emoji actually mean in this text message. And we're going back and forth and back and forth over that. We're going to keep on going with that. Um, the other point that I thought was worth remembering about compliance and technology is that more and more apps are going to be out there that are not necessarily aimed for the technology, uh, for the compliance professional. They're not aimed for your function. They're aimed for business functions, but will help you help the business be more compliant anyways. And so here's what I mean. I, I love this example of a software firm I know here in Boston uh, where they – provide this easy cloud-based service to make travel reservations. If you're an employee and you're meeting a customer, you're going off to a hotel for a business trip or a conference or whatever. And 20 years ago, you would have had to have a corporate travel department or you would have had to let the employee do it themselves and then they submit a bunch of receipts and you catch up to it on Excel six weeks later and try and find the fraud. So that's all gone today if you want you can sign up for these software firms that will manage the travel experience for your employees, and they generate two tons of data that you, the compliance officer, can use for data analysis and try and figure out, is this travel and entertainment spending that I'm seeing, is this legit, or is this a prelude to a fraud or an FCPA action of some kind? Um, a lot of companies can use this. A lot of small companies can use it. A lot of fast-growing companies like cloud-based technology vendors to help business processes. This is a wonderful advance in business IT. Um, the question for compliance officers is, can I find the right cloud-based app that people in the first line of defense will like and they'll use it, and also it gives me enough data that I can do my compliance analysis, my compliance management, and I can be more productive in doing it anyways – like that's the, the Shangri-La, the sweet spot that we have to get to. And we're just tiptoeing into that. I bet 10 years from now we'll all be in it. But um, I, I'm very bullish about what technology can do for compliance. Just we have to be aware of the arms race that's out there too. Follow on from that, not simply the creation or catalog cataloging of the data, but having a compliance professional who can interpret that data as well? It is, yeah. I mean, I do think that um, – Data governance, data management, data analytics, expertise in those fields is going to become critical for a compliance professional in the coming decade. Um, and I do think that a lot of compliance officers know that. Uh, I mean, the most interesting projects I hear about from compliance officers these days is much more about how you build and manage complex IT systems to give you data for good analysis. Um, but 
we are going to see more and more companies turn to these point-specific cloud vendors that really make one specific business process run so much better. And the employees will love it. And the question is whether you, the compliance officer, will you be part of shaping that in a productive way so that you can get the data that the business process and the cloud vendor throws off and you can do compliance well? Or are you going to be sitting on the sidelines until you've discovered six months later that they've been doing this for, for months already? Um, you know, that it's, it's going to be more about will the compliance officer get to participate in these questions and conversations about tech adoption in the first line of defense or even in finance, accounting, and HR and the other second line of defense functions. Um, we're going to see a whole bunch of apps everybody's going to love. Will you be able to peel off useful data and repurpose it for your compliance analysis and your program management? That's going to be the big question for a lot of compliance officers in years to come. So it's uh, something I know we will continue to watch, Matt, and this report was certainly fascinating, particularly in terms, I I thought, at least of the survey component. So uh, interesting uh, information uh, going forward. Matt, we have a little bit of time left, and I was wondering if uh, we might uh, pay a little tribute to someone who passed away last week uh, and his role in the creation of the modern compliance practitioner, that being Bernie Ebers. What were some of your thoughts on Bernie? I have my Bernie Ebers story. So many years ago, for those who are young enough not to fully realize who Bernie Ebers was, uh, he was a telecom executive and he built up WorldCom, made it a complete fraud. It collapsed in 2002, helped to usher in the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. But long before all of that stuff, In the 1990s, I was an editor of a technology magazine where we had a telecom beat, and uh, we had an excellent telecom reporter who uh, I worked with very often, and I heard him on a conference call with a certain telecom executive, and he was pushing this executive to really, I just don't get how your business plans and your your strategy lead to the money and the profits that you're talking about. I don't understand your metrics. I don't understand the business model. I don't understand where this profit is coming from. That's what my telecom reporter was asking this executive and the executive said, and I heard this on the conference call, if you are too dumb to figure out my business model, that is not my problem. You should go back and study it a little bit harder. And that executive was Bernie Ebers yelling at my telecom reporter in 1999. And three years later, I, I hunted down my telecom reporter, and he said he certainly felt vindicated then. Um, you know, it's, it's a shame that uh, Bernie Ebers did what he did. He certainly caused a lot of people pain. And um, he is, in some ways, partly responsible for all of us here today. And we do, I suppose, owe him a debt of gratitude. It's just unfortunate that he owed so much else to so many other people he screwed over. So my story is a little more secondhand. Uh, I've heard this innumerable times because it comes from Stephen Martin. And Stephen and I have done many uh, panels together uh, over the years. And when the original internal investigation that uncovered the sales fraud, it was actually Stephen Martin who performed that investigation. Ah. And as he tells the story, um, he completed his investigation, looked like about $50 million in fraud, which at that point seemed manageable um, compared to what happened later. And he gets back after about a four-week on-the-road investigation all over the United States. 
And uh, that afternoon, he receives a call from a reporter in the Wall Street Journal and says, uh, we have a full copy of your report. We're publishing it as an exclusive story tomorrow. Would you like to comment? Um, He was a little stunned that his report uh, had already gotten out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, it was Stephen who did the initial investigation, uh, which led to the downfall of WorldCom. So uh, that's my story. Uh, It is amazing how just a handful of people 20 years ago or so who screwed over an enormous number of other people, uh, how instrumental they were to bring so many of us to where we all are today. Well, Matt, uh, it's been a fascinating uh, exploration of a couple of different topics. I look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I'll link to Matt's blog post in the show notes, so check it out for further information. I would also encourage you to read the entire Hogan Lovell's report. It's very enlightening. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic, which takes us into the weeds of compliance. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.